0: So there's this island in uh, Southeast Asia. It's called Borneo. Uh, I had never even heard of it prior to reading about this. It's uh, a huge island. It's right near uh, kind of, I think it's in between Singapore and the Philippines. Back in the 1950s on this island, they had this terrible uh, malaria epidemic. People dying, like in big numbers. Uh, and there was this particular tribe on the island which was very much affected by this epidemic. So the, U- the UN got involved and they sprayed the island with uh, DDT to kill the mosquitoes and it worked. Um, but within a few weeks, uh, mosquitoes were dead But uh, something strange started to happen, completely unexpected. These people lived in, I guess, more or less like huts. And the huts that they lived in, the the, the roofs were made of like thatched branches, I guess. The roofs all started falling in, pretty much at the same time. Nobody knew what was going on. Well, it turns out uh, the DDT, didn't just kill the mosquitoes, it killed these wasps, who actually, they didn't even know this, but they used to serve a purpose. The wasps used to kill or eat these caterpillars. The caterpillars, when given chance, eat the thatched roof of these huts. So now that they were surviving, they were eaten away at the roofs of these huts, So the wasps are dead, which means that the caterpillars are alive and they destroyed these huts. In the meantime, the mosquitoes, which were killed by the poison, they're laying on the ground dead. Lizards were coming around and eating the dead mosquitoes, which in turn were eaten by the cats on the island. And the cats were now dying because of the poison, well, going back to the mosquitoes. So you got all these dead cats with no cats on the island. The rats had a field day. They just, the island became overrun with rats. The cats used to kind of limit the rat population. So the UN had to come back and deal with the rats So they brought in a bunch of cats. Believe it or not, it sounds absurd, but they parachuted hundreds of cats onto the island. In fact, they called it Operation Cat Drop, which is no joke. And I don't know why they had to parachute them in. Um, Couldn't they just put them on a boat and drop them off? Um, I think they were in boxes. There wasn't like a cat with a parachute on around its neck. Anyway, that resolved it. The cats were now there, which in turn made the, uh, the mice, I mean the rats disappear. It does say something about how nature is connected, doesn't it? You mess with one part of the whole system and one thing affects another, 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 and things are just out of whack. It's all connected, so are we. Think about it. Think about it even among us. You know, some, some significant change in your life comes your way, some disruption, something you totally didn't anticipate, and everything gets thrown off. Everybody, not just the immediate person, but everybody connected to that person very often. I mean, think about it. Think about a family. Think about a young family, young parents with kids and parent dies, everything's thrown off, to say the least. Addiction, the impact of somebody's drug or alcohol addiction, can just fracture a family. Infidelity, somebody makes a, a terrible mistake in a relationship which causes a fracture in that relationship which then trickles on to the kids and trust and betrayal. Like, we're all connected. And I'm not just talking about rats and cats and mosquitoes. I'm talking about us. And I think when certain important connections are blown up, when they're broken, terrible things can happen. It's actually what Jesus prays against in this gospel. He's praying. It's the Last Supper. He's praying for himself because he knows what's coming. He's praying for the disciples because he knows they're going to be left behind. And then he prays for the early church, the community itself. What he's really asking for, all of it, is like connection, unity, He says, I pray, this is the prayer, I pray that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, God, Jesus' prayer to the Father is, please keep people connected. Keep them connected. I mean, this is his final prayer before, hours before his death. Think about it, if you knew, say you knew you were going to die in the next day, what would your prayer look like? What would you be praying for? Be a serious prayer, no doubt. Wouldn't be praying about frivolous nonsense. It'd probably be the most focused, thoughtful prayer we ever prayed. And this is what we got with Jesus. And what's he praying for? Unity, like connection. It's got to be important. It wouldn't have been on his mind and on his lips if it wasn't. Like when we're fractured, when we are disconnected, when we're divided and broken as a people, as families, as a nation, and there's disunity because of it, we're at our worst, it seems to me. Think, like, when somebody you love goes off the rails in some big way, isn't it terrible? Maybe it's a member of your family, maybe it's one of your kids, and we're rattled by it. We're not losing, we're, we're, not, we're not sleeping because of it. Institutions that we love, when the church goes off the rails, we're shaken. And we're discouraged and we're confused when when the country does things that make us wonder. You know, you hear a story about you know law enforcement, and we, you know, a bad a bad encounter, and we're all kind of we're shaken by it. Because we love these institutions, because we know we need them, and we know they're honorable. But when they're fractured, we all suffer. I mean, look at Look at us. Look at our country. This past week, look at Texas. What a terrible story, terrible event. I was reading this article. Um, it was actually like an interview with these two, uh, you know, university professors who had written a book about school, uh, about mass shooters. They did a ton of research. Why this happens? who these people are, what makes them snap. And they did tons of, like I said, they studied individuals, they studied these events, shootings at schools and workplaces, houses of worship, and they came up with these conclusions, most of which are kind of obvious, stuff that I think we naturally would come come up with. There are just certain common denominators with all of these horrible events, and these people, pretty much every one of these shooters had some terrible childhood event, some childhood trauma that fractured them, violence of some kind, abuse of some kind, parental suicide they never recover from extreme, terrible bullying, and they become broken. And then they begin to ha- lose hope, depression, isolation, despair. Suicide attempts usually are part of the, the profile. And then there's another piece to it. They are suicidal. But then they, they know, like with these shootings, they, like they know this is it for them. They know they're not going to survive it. But they turn the anger and the self-hate outward. And they're like, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take people with me. So they single out groups, and it's usually people that they hated. Classmates, some religious group, some ethnic group, women. And the self-hate is turned outward. In you know, this article, this interview, they were asked about how we see these people Specifically, what we call them. Like we come up with terrible descriptions of these people because they've done terrible. But we call them animals and monsters. We kind of dehumanize them. And these two people who wrote the book, they're like, that's not a good thing. Like, don't do that. As tempted as we are, as much as we kind of feel that, it's not, it doesn't help. This is what they say. If we, explain, if we explain this problem as pure evil or other labels like terrorist attack or hate crime, we feel better because it makes it seem like we've found the motive and we've solved the puzzle. But we haven't solved anything. We've just explained the problem away. What this really problematic terminology does, it prevent, is, is it prevents us from recognizing that mass shooters are us. And this is hard for people to relate to, understandably, because these people have done horrific, monstrous things. But three days earlier, that school shooter was somebody's son or grandson or neighbor or classmate. We have to recognize them as the troubled human being earlier, if we want to intervene before they become the monster. I mean, nobody's born evil, right? No baby is born evil. Some are difficult. You know, get parents to talk about their three or four kids. Was one of them more difficult? Yeah, maybe, probably. And maybe even after they were babies, they were like, yeah, they were, just, they were kind of tougher. They were tougher than the rest. But evil? Nobody's born evil. Nobody's born a monster. And I think what these, you know, these experts are saying is like, do we on some level maybe own some of this? And I wonder if, some, if, there are, if there's a, an 18-year-old or two in Texas, like right now, this morning, who's had trouble sleeping the last week because they're thinking about how they treated this guy when they were in middle school and how they tormented him and abused him. They say he had a lisp and a stutter. They probably ran wild with that, can only imagine. And I wonder if they're uneasy. I wonder if they're thinking, I don't know, did I contribute to the fracture? And listen, I'm not, you know, this is not like a, a, a bleeding heart, lefty kind of thing where it's everybody else's fault. No, I mean, it's, it's his fault. He did what he did. You, didn't, you never solve your, your, your pain that way. Believe me, I'm not, not going to bat for that guy. I'm just saying, do we need to look at the culture we're living in? You know, a culture which, which God has been sort of driven into the basement or into some closet where faith and religion are become replaced by pretty much everything else. So people don't even fear God anymore. Hey, maybe that's part of the the fracture. A culture which has become just so gross, so graphic, so explicit, so violent, so crude, Song lyrics that are just a disgrace, and we're like, yeah, I know, it's not good, but we're not doing anything about it. A culture where parents have abdicated their responsibility, they've just checked out. You know what they said in in this article? Almost all of these guys had absent fathers, fathers who just disappeared. Could that have been part of the fracture? Yeah, I mean, one more time, none of these things should ever lead to what happened in Texas. But it seems to be. These killers snap. They break. I don't know. Do we have some part in the snap? In the break? Consider this. Since two thousand. Nine. There have been 288 school shootings in this country. 288. During that same time, in Canada, France, Germany, Japan, Italy, and the UK, there were five. Combined. 288, five. Something's wrong. Those numbers are scandalous, aren't they? That's not who we are. We've gone off the rails. You know, do you remember uh, Tim Russert? He was the uh, TV journalist, Meet the Press. He uh, He died suddenly about 15 years ago. He wrote a book a couple of years before he died about It's kind of a memoir, growing up in Buffalo in the 1950s and the early 60s. He talks a lot about his father in the book. His father was a World War II vet, total greatest generation guy. And the book just talks about the principles that surrounded his parents and that really surrounded him, Russert, growing up, where faith and God and church were just a given It was so much a part of their lives, family and sacrifice, like these principles that were just such a part of our country and and that generation. That's who we were. Anyway, he tells this story, this experience he had. Listen to this. It wasn't until 1980, when I was 30, that I really began to understand how my father's generation had affected the course of history. I was working in Washington when I was offered a fellowship to visit Europe for five weeks. I wasn't sure I should go, but my boss encouraged me and finally insisted that I go. When I arrived in Germany, I decided to visit Dachau, the site of the notorious concentration camp, which wasn't far from Munich. As much as I had learned about World War II and about the Holocaust, nothing prepared me for what I saw and felt at Dachau. The remnants of the camp were still there, the gas chambers and the ovens. Suddenly, out of nowhere, another visitor, a short, older man, came running up to me. He threw himself at my knees, grabbed my ankles, and started sobbing. Then he stood up and started talking to me in Polish, of which I understood not a word, except American. Over and over again, American. I nodded, yes. Then a woman came over and began to translate. The man was a Jew who had been a prisoner at Dachau when it was liberated by the Americans. He'd come back to visit for the first time in 30 years. And when he saw me looking like an American, he was overcome with grief and gratitude. Over and over again, he kept saying, thank you, America. Thank you, America. He was crying. I was crying. And so were the other tourists who gathered around us. It was hard to believe what had actually happened at Dachau, and being there didn't make it any easier. But my encounter with this survivor, the embrace of this man who was liberated and saved from certain death, touched me to my core. I thought of my my father and of all the young, all the other young Americans who went overseas during World War II to save the world from Nazism. When I returned to Munich, I went straight to the post office And for the first time in my life, I placed an overseas call. I wanted to tell my dad what I had just experienced. And I wanted to thank him for going to war and for being the example that he was. That's who we are. Well, that's who we were. And it's who we need to be again.